upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And at this time, I want to pause for just a few seconds to bring to our remembrance. If you look behind me to the cross, it will help you to recall that day some 2,070 odd years ago of the price that he was willing to pay. And he left us a memorial here to bring back that memory each and every Lord's Day that we meet. Would the men come forward? Now let us pause and silence and look upon the cross. Don't look at me and bring back that memory. Our God and our Father, how great and glorious, loving is Thy name, Thy actions, and what You've done for us. Father, we're thankful for this day that You have set aside one day each week for us to recall of what we're on this earth for. To bring honor to your name and to look back at the price that was paid for our sins. That we have the opportunity to look unto Thee with the hope of an eternal life. This we do in Thy Son's name as we break this bread. Let us again remember. We pray this in His name. Amen. Let us bow. Again, Father, we have a simple item that should remind us partially of the price that was paid. His blood. In our minds, we can see it streaming down his body onto the ground with the love in his heart and in his mind for us that he was willing his father was willing to let him 
suffer and die upon that cross. As we partake of this fruit of the vine, again, we're mindful of the strength that He had, the courage, the love for us. And it is for that we give thanks for this fruit of the vine. In His name, Amen. convenience sake, we want to take this opportunity to return a portion of that that God has so blessed us with. God does not need the money at all. But the church needs the money to spread His Word to the lost and dying world. And this, in the time of Christ, they gave more of their time than money. How much time do we give to the Lord each week? That is as important as the money. But we have this opportunity at this time to return a portion of that He has so bountifully blessed us with. Let us give thanks for that. Our God and Father in Heaven, we're thankful for all the blessings. They're so numerous and so great that it's impossible to think of all of them. But we understand, Father, that our purpose on this life, on this earth, is to share with our fellow man the hope that lies within us, to strengthen your church, your kingdom that is on this earth. And we pray, Father, that the monies that will be collected will be used to further that cause. But bless us all with some time to give to Thy service because we are all servants of Thine. And again we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's scripture reading will come from Matthew. Chapter 22, I'll be reading 41 through 46. Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one is able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Thank you, Adam. If you have your Bibles open there, just keep them open to the book of Matthew. 
Uh, and we'll start with about chapter 21 this morning. I do have a few things that I want to say before we get into the lesson. And first off, I don't know if it got announced, but they took Miss Sharon Suggs to Baptist East Hospital last night. I think Ann is with her this morning. And she's asked that we would remember her in our prayers. Uh, let's also remember our young people. And they're, they're away on the fall retreat. And uh, just pray that uh, that can be a time of positive spiritual renewal for them. Uh, just, I really appreciate uh, everyone, and especially Dustin, for the work that he puts into that. And You know, I had this, this realization. We were driving home, uh, I guess, on Wednesday night, and we were talking about the fall retreat. And Deacon asked if he could go, and we said, No, buddy, this is, this is, for, this is just for the kids in the sixth grade and up, uh, you know, more, more of the youth group. And he said, So we'll be going next year. And I thought, My daughter will be in sixth grade next year. And uh, some of you guys are going to have to help me with that because I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. But uh, I, I know that she's excited. And I just want to say I appreciate. You know, I won't say it while Dustin's here because his head gets big enough. But they, uh, they appreciate the work that, that he does. And don't forget next Sunday, uh, we'll have a special guest speaker. Brother Chuck Morris will be here. And I know you're excited to see Chuck and to see his family. And he'll have a great lesson for us. And then next Sunday night... Uh, all of our men that went to Haiti and worked in that effort are going to be uh, giving a presentation and talking and leading our worship Sunday night. And then afterwards, plan on sticking around. There's going to be a finger food fellowship in the back, and there's going to be a little bit more presentation about the work there in Haiti. Uh, but uh, just come out and support those men and show some interest in the things that, that they sacrificed to be a part of. And I know that you'll you'll enjoy that and appreciate that. Well. We started last week to look at the life of, of Jesus. We started at the beginning of the year to look at the life of Jesus. But last week, we started to look at, at the last week of the life of Jesus. What, what sometimes we talk about as, as the Passion Week. Uh, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. And last Sunday, we saw Him coming in on that Sunday morning uh, to what, what sometimes we talk about being that Palm Sunday. When, the, when Jesus uh, came into Jerusalem and the people lined the streets and they threw their coats on the road and the palm branches on the road and they shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna, here is the one who is going to save us. And the city is beginning to fill with people as, as people begin to, to come for, for the for, for the Passover, which we're just a week away from, from, well, we're less than a week away from the observance of the Passover and what's going on here. Jews are coming from all over the world, and one of those Jews is Jesus. One of those Jews is this teacher who thousands of people are flocking to. One of those Jews is this man who has greatly upset the establishment. Well, when Jesus comes in, He doesn't do anything to, to disarm the tension. As a matter of fact, and we don't, won't have time during our series to talk about this, but on Monday of that week, Jesus goes into the temple. And you, know, you remember what He does. The Bible says that Jesus cleansed the temple. And not, not in that He preached the greatest sermon that there ever has been. The Bible says He physically cleansed the, the temple. He cast out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And He said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you are making it a robber's den. I didn't say that to say, Jesus calls a scene. 
Right? Jesus, He was not over in some corner somewhere waiting for people to say, would you tell me what it is that you think about this? No, Jesus was pushing the edge, pushing the establishment. But no one could do anything about it. Because immediately after He made this scene, the Bible says, and the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. Well, if someone is coming and He's healing people who are blind and people who are lame, you're not going to be able to say anything about it. But, but I share that Monday with you to, to help you understand there was a great deal of tension in the city of Jerusalem. There was a great deal of tension, especially there in the temple. Luke says about this time in Luke 19 that he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people, they sought to destroy him. But they were unable to do anything, for all of the people were very attentive to hear him. You see, they didn't like what Jesus had to say, but there wasn't really a whole lot they could do about it. And so we come to Tuesday. And Tuesday is where we will spend the next couple of, of Sunday mornings. But, but in particular, on this Tuesday, we're going to call this a, a day of great questions or a great day of questions. Because as people come, come, in, come into the temple, they're going to begin to ask Jesus a series of questions, all from different perspectives and all, all from different backgrounds. But all of these questions are going to, to center around the, this central idea of trying to, to dis discredit Him, of trying to tear Him down. And the first of those questions we read in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23, the Bible says on that Tuesday morning, when He came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they confronted Him as He was teaching. And they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Doing what things? Well, who gave you the authority to come in here and cleanse the temple? Who gave you the authority, they would even ask at times, to heal other people? Who gave you that right? Would you think about that if someone came in and they turned over the communion table here this morning and would, would you wonder, who does he think he is? What gives you the right to do that? And that's the question that they're asking. Who do you think you are? This is a question. This is a question that we have all asked in virtually every aspect of our life. All the way back to when all the way back to when you were a little kid, Adam, and, and you and you were you were with with your friends and they said, You need to go over here and do this. And what did you say? Are you my daddy? You're not my daddy. You can't tell me what to do. We've all had that conversation, haven't we? We've had it as little children. We've had it as grown adults. We've had it as, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Who do you think you are? Where did you get your authority? That's what they're asking Jesus. You're not the one who has the authority over me. Friends, I would say this is the greatest issue that we face, that we face in the religious world today. So much of the fighting that takes place in our religious world centers around this idea of authority. Who has the right to tell you or to tell me what to do? If you look even, even amongst religions outside of Christianity, and so much of their fighting centers around this idea, who has the right to tell me what to do? And typically they center around the fact that nobody, especially not you, have the right to tell me what to do. 
Who gave you this authority? Well, Jesus, the Bible says, the Bible says in verse 24, answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if I tell you, which if you will tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from the was it from heaven or was it from men? Can I tell you that one of the great mistakes that we make in the religious world today and in our in our day-to-day lives is this idea that we ought to answer every question that people ask us? But Jesus Jesus did not answer every question that people asked him. Oh, when, when, when people came with honest and pure and sincere hearts, and he always answered those questions. But when people came with hearts that were not pure, when people came with an agenda before the Lord, he didn't always answer. Sometimes he would ask a question. Sometimes, as he will in this text, say, I- I'm not going to answer your question because I don't think you really want to know the answer to it. I think you're trying to make a point. I think you're trying to cause a scene. I'm not going to play your little game. Because as he asked them this question about the baptism of John, the Bible says that they began to reason within themselves. And they said, well, if we say it's from heaven, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to ask us why we didn't listen to it. And if we say it's from men, well, then the people are going to get upset. So we're just going to say... We don't know. Now that wasn't the truth. They did know. And we can't always make those determinations, but the Bible, it's awesome in that it gives us those insights into what's really going on behind the scenes. And Jesus said to them, that neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They were not interested in the truth. They were not interested in the validity of Jesus' message. They were not interested in whether He really was who He claimed to be. What they were interested in was shutting Him up. What they were interested in was protecting their position. What they were interested in was getting their way. And Jesus says, I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to take a part in that. Tell me. Tell me by whose authority do you do these things? They didn't really care. They thought they could trap Him. And so Jesus begins to tell them a series of three parables. And we could spend a whole lesson on every one of these parables. But but the first of those parables, we, we, we all know about that parable of the two sons. And one of the sons, one of the sons said he would, he would go and work, but he didn't go. And another one of the sons said he wasn't going to, but then he did go out after he regretted it. And Jesus asked in verse 31, which of the two did the Father's will? And they said, well, the latter one did the Father's will. Verse 31, He looks at them and He says, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the harlots, they will get into the kingdom of God before you will get into the kingdom of God. Because John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe Him. But those tax gatherers and those harlots, they did believe Him. And you seeing this, you did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe Him. What's He saying? I have brought you the message of life and you don't care. I have shown you a path of righteousness and you have not followed. You didn't even feel bad about it later and follow later. You are that son who has looked at his father and says, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Even under the pretense that you you say you will, I'll follow him anywhere. But you haven't done it, he says. 
And then he tells them the parable of the landowner. Some of our Bibles talk about the parable of the wicked vine dresser, about a master who had who had a vineyard, and that vineyard he left he he, he left in, in the control of of his servants. And the Bible says that he sent a slave back back to check on, on his property, and they stoned him. Verse verse thirty five. The vine grower took the slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing. And then, and then, and then the master sent his own son. Prophetic, knowing what we will see at the end of the week. He sent his own son and they did the same thing to him. This is the heir, verse, 35, verse 38. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. So Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those, to those vine growers? They knew. They understood it when it came to, to the growing of vines. They simply failed to look inward. They simply failed to, uh, to understand this is not about growing vines. This is not about father-son relationships. He will bring those wretches to, to, the, to a wretched end and rent out the vineyard to other vine growers and will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Yeah, Jesus says that's exactly what's going to happen. But these things are not about a vine grower. No, these are about the way that you have treated my prophets. These are about the way that you have treated my spokesmen. These, this is about the way that you have treated those who have come. And even the way that you have treated the very Son of God. You have not listened. And because of that, there will be a price to pay. I'm going to give it to someone else. Verse 45 says that they understood. He was speaking about them. And then he tells a parable of the wedding feast. A parable of the wedding feast where those who were invited were too busy to come. And so, and so he decided he would invite everyone and anyone. And ultimately, as we come, as we come to the conclusion of that parable, Jesus is making the point. He's making the point that those who do not appreciate or respect what it was, the opportunity that was before them, they would not. They would not enjoy the feast. I'm speaking about you, he says. You coming to me asking me by what authority? You don't care about authority. You come to me under the guise that, 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 that you care about, about, about what my will is or about what my teachings are. That's not what this is about. Jesus is saying the message to them and the message to us is to be a people that actually acknowledge His authority. He has the authority to heal people. He has the authority to come in and turn over the tables. He has the authority to guide our steps. He has the authority to command us how to live our life. He has that authority. Do we acknowledge that? Because this is foundational in regards to our faith. I read a Pew survey this week that surveyed young, Catholic, young Catholics between the age of, 20, of 18 to 29. And the survey was, was, was rather revealing because amongst, amongst those young Catholics between the age of, of 18 to 29, self-professing, they stated by 85%, 85% of those self-professing Catholics felt that homosexuality should be accepted by society. 
85%. Only 15% thought that it should be discouraged. Now, that has nothing to do with the position of that body of, of, that body of, of people. Because that church as a whole, that gathering as a whole has been overwhelmingly clear that homosexuality is, in their, in their words, intrinsically disordered. It is a sin. But there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between the, the, the official position of the church and what, and what people were living and promoting. When, when the church says 100% this is sinful, and 85% of their young people say, we ought, we ought to be accepting these things, there's a problem. That's not a Catholic problem, friends. That's a religious problem. That's a God problem. That can be our problem. It's not enough for us simply to say, this, this is the position of the church. That won't work. That won't work. If we, if we, think, if we think that there's something that, that's going to keep our children or keep our grandchildren or keep our family or keep our friends, if we think that there's something that's going to bind us here, other than the idea that this is the inspired Word of God that has the authority to direct all of our steps, then we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be disappointed. That was the struggle. We must be a people who dive deep with an absolute confidence in the total truthfulness, trustfulness, and authority of the Word of God. Otherwise, those same statistics will soon be our statistics. By what authority? Well, as Jesus concludes these parables, or concludes that these parables, another group come to him. And, the, and their second question is, is no less controversial. He's going to talk about government. He's going to talk about politics. You want to start making people uncomfortable? Let's talk about politics. You want to start getting people upset? You start, let, 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 let's talk about politics. And so the Bible says, the Bible says, as we are in chapter 22 and verse 15, the Pharisees went and they counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they, sent their, and they sent their disciples to Him along with, along with the Herodians. Understand that the Herodians were people, were Jewish people who believed in the idea that the Herods had a right to rule their people. A very unpopular idea amongst the Jewish people, especially amongst the Pharisees. But, but when people are up to no good, they, they, will, they will put themselves with people they would never associate with. They come with the Herodians and, and, they, and they say something to Jesus that I think is so interesting. Because they didn't intend to pay Him a compliment. But in my mind, they pay Him an immense compliment. One that I hope and I pray can be made about every one of us. They said, Teacher, now we know. We know that you are truthful and, you, and that you teach the way of God in truth and that you defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. What are you saying? I know that you don't play any games. I know that no one, no one besides God influences what, what, what you're going to preach and what, and, what, and what you're going to teach. That the people on the left can't pull you and the people on the right can't pull you. I, I know all that. So i got a question for you because I know you're going to, you're going to tell me like it is. Is it lawful? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Because many people who would want to rebel against the government, 
those Jewish people who said, those people don't have a right to be here. We're not going to pay them any taxes. So Jesus, you, you answer that question. Once again, if he, if he says yes, then he must, be, he must be a man who supports the oppression of their people. If he says no, then, then, then he must be rebelling against the government itself and bringing all of these things upon us. What is he going to say? They were plotting how to entangle him. You know the story. That Jesus simply takes that, takes that coin and He looks at them and He says, Why are you testing Me? You hypocrites. Why are you testing Me? Can we end this charade? Can we end this charade that you're coming as an honest and a true seeker? Because they weren't. Why are you testing Me? Never mind. I'll answer your question. And he picks up the coin and he says, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar, verse 21, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What is he saying? Fulfilling, fulfilling civil obligations is not inconsistent with obedience to God. Caesar came up with the money. Caesar came up with the tax. Pay it as part of the society that, that, that you live in. Give Caesar the things that he's due. But let me tell you this. Give God the things that he's due. Give God the things that he's due. There are some things that are the exclusive property of God. For example, the right to be worshipped and the right to be praised. Pay as much concern about what we, do, uh, uh, about what we owe to Caesar as what we owe to God. And so the Bible says they went away. If they come back, the Sadducees come back, and they come back with a question about the afterlife. What's it going to be like? What happens when we die? Tell me about heaven. Tell me about hell. All these questions. But the Sadducees are the ones who come. Verse 23 says that the Sadducees came who say there is no resurrection. But the Sadducees did not just say there is no resurrection. They said there is no resurrection because they said that there is no spiritual reality. There is no after this life. There is no, there is no spiritual realm. That's why they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so the Sadducees come and they begin to, to ask him this question about Leverite marriage and about, about, this, about this woman whose husband died and she went to this brother and then he died and he went to, to this brother. And, and at, the, at the end of the story, they have this woman who's been married to seven different men, all very rightly married to those men. Now I'm not talking about an, an adulterous situation, but she's got the right to be married. She was supposed to be taken in by these men. And so they ask him this question, well, if that's the case in the resurrection. I mean, after this life, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. It was this marriage entanglement. Do we not do that sometimes? Whenever we want to avoid a teaching, whenever we want to avoid a situation, we put forth the most tangled story that our minds can possibly imagine. But what about this? And what about that? And we, and we convolute the issue. And the issue no longer becomes about the truth. The issue becomes about how complicated can I make this? That's all, the, that's all that these people were doing. And Jesus once again, Jesus once again looks at them and he says, You are mistaken. Verse, 30, verse 29. 
You are mistaken not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. You're asking questions and you don't have the first idea what you're even talking about. You think you know. You think that you're so smart. You think that you found this. Oh, I got Him now. You don't even know what you're talking about, Jesus says. You don't even know the Scriptures. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But they are like the angels in heaven. The heavenly realm, the spiritual world, is not like this world. They operated under the false assumption that if life continues past the grave, which they didn't believe it did, but if it did, that it must continue exactly like it does in this world. And it doesn't. But they didn't know that. Do you know why? Because they'd never been there. They'd never experienced it. You have the words of eternal life. Why should you listen to Jesus? Why should you listen to Jesus? Because He's died and He's come back. Because He's been there. Friends, you don't know another man who can say that. I don't care. You don't know another woman that can say that. You don't know anybody who can say that. They did not know what they were talking about. And finally, an individual comes... And, and, and not of the, the Pharisees, not of the Sadducees, but the Bible says there was a, a, t- a teacher or a lawyer. Some of your Bibles say not, not a lawyer in the law, but, but a lawyer in the law of God. Someone who knew the Bible, knew it inside and he knew it out. And he said, teacher, verse 36, which is the, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This was their practice. When they sat around and they would talk about things, they would talk about the weightier things versus the less weighty things. And they would try to to rank the commandments of God. And which one do you think is the most important commandment for, for us to keep? Do we do that sometimes? Do we, do we try to rank sin? Do we try to rank the will of God? And this one's really important, and this one's not, not so important. I think we do it all the time. People sometimes say, well, well, I, I think that's a, that's a salvation issue, and that's not a salvation issue. Because that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. We've got to stop that. We, we, because what we're saying is, this is something the Bible teaches that will affect our salvation, and this is something the Bible teaches which you can take it or leave it. That's not there. As a people, we simply have to ask, what does the Bible teach? That's it. That's it. Friends, if the Bible teaches it, it's important. I'll let God worry about salvation. I'll let God worry about heaven and hell. Which one's the most important? Which one can I take? Which one can I, can I violate and it's not a big deal? Which one do I need to be really serious about keeping? Jesus, it doesn't work that way. I'll answer your question, but I'm not going to give you the answer that you want. It's not the first time this question's asked to Him, right? Here's the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all, and, and all of your mind. This is the greatest and the foremost commandment. Why? Because it's foundational. Because this is the one that leads to every other one. Because if you do that, then they're all important. Seek God. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Have you had those days where somebody comes, question after question after question, and they're not little yes or no questions. They are big questions. And many times, people, people are not maybe even there sincerely asking those questions. That's the day that Jesus had. 
turning away the scribes, turning away the Pharisees, turning away the Sadducees, the Herodians, the lawyers, everybody who wanted a piece of Him, everybody who wanted to shut Him up, everybody who didn't want to hear what it was that He had to say. Jesus knew where they were coming from. A day, a day of great questions. Can I ask us, can I tell us, don't be afraid to ask Jesus tough questions. There are some tough questions, aren't there? There are some things that it's not a simple yes or no, and if we had five minutes, we could just barely scratch the surface. Somebody came to me this week with a question, and I told them, I said, you know what? There are great answers to that, but it's going to take us a while to get there. Because it's a big question. It's a deep question. It's not a simple question. Ask them anyways. If you don't ask them, your faith is going to suffer. Don't ask them like these people asked them. Okay? These people were just looking for a way out. Don't ask questions of God looking for a way out. Ask questions of God looking for how you might serve Him and how you might follow Him. That's what the children of God do. That's what His disciples did. He's not afraid of those questions, and we don't have to be either. When people ask us questions, and the best we can come up with is, I don't know. That's okay, because He does. I don't know, but I've got confidence that the answers are there. Let's go and look. Let's open up the Word of God. Let's study. Let's discuss. Let's find the truth. The truth that leads into life. That's the Word of God. It's a day of great, great questions. And when that happens, friends, the Bible, the truth, it will prevail. But Jesus, Jesus turns, turns the page. Verse... Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. I know we've been doing this all day, right? You've been asking me 20 questions. and What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? I'm going to ask you a real question, and I'm going to ask it honestly and sincerely. And I'm going to prove that to you before the week's over. I'm going to prove to you how sincere I am. You may not think I'm sincere. You may think I'm some false prophet. You may think I'm some heretic. By the end of the week, I'm going to put my blood where my mouth is. Let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He? See, that's really the question. I'm going to ask it to you this morning. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about this man that was hated by so many and loved by so many others? What do you think about Jesus? As I can tell you for myself, He's my Savior. He's the one who has redeemed me from my sin. He's the one who has come to show me a way, a better way, a way that leads to life. He's the one who has loved me in spite of myself. He's the one who has died for me. He's the one who brings me hope and peace and comfort when, when no one else and nothing else can. He is the Son of God who took on flesh for reasons that, 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 that are beyond my understanding. He put on flesh and He came to this world and He allowed Himself to be mocked and beaten and sped in and rejected and crucified on the cross to pay a debt that I owed. The Son of God. And He's the one that no matter what happens in life, no matter what I face in life, He's the one that's going to come again and take me home. That's who He is. But 
I'm going to ask you the question this morning. Who is He to you? Because there is a great need for us to be a people who will confess what I just confessed. Not just because I'm the preacher, but that we will confess it to our friends and to our family and to our co-workers and to the whole world to those who want to hear it and to those who don't want to hear it. Because He is the Son of God. And whatever else may matter in life, nothing matters if that doesn't matter. Who is the Christ to you? It may mean, in order to answer that question, you need to come and put Him on in baptism. To be washed in His blood. To walk in His light. It may mean that we need to come and throw ourselves upon His th- upon His throne, to ask for His forgiveness, to ask for His mercy. It may mean that we simply need to to lean upon Him and upon His strength. But I'm going to ask you the same question that Jesus asked those who would question Him, because your answer to this determines everything else. Who is the Christ to you? Why don't you answer that question this morning as we stand and as we sing?